Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wish, you know, real audiences were as giving. <laughs> Welcome to uh, Pantasocracy. And as always, in my parlor, we have a, a gathering of interesting people. And today, our uh, Pantasocracy parlor is very much pointing due north, as we have determined in our Pantasocracy Society of Equals to take a border tour and to put a little northern iron in our brew and talk about the lines that will divide us and sometimes unite us. So around our table today, we have an artist uh, with a darkly whimsical, even surreal eye. It's Rita Duffy. <laughs> Rita is Belfast-born, but for a man of living. She's a woman whose take on the 1916 commemorations was an iconic souvenir shop, whose souvenirs included free state jam and black and tan boot polish. Rita says all art is political, and all her art is political, but that humour is the most underrated political tool in the box. So thank you for being here, Rita. Uh, next, Rita is a Dan Patrick man who left these shores for love and creative fortune in Finland, of all places. It's musician, singer and poet Stefan Handy. <laughs> One of the things that Stefan is interested in is how artists respond to the black and white or the green and orange lines of division. So welcome, Stefan. Next we have, uh, well, two songful young women, Gemma Doherty and Morgan McIntyre. <laughs> they are not um, blood sisters, but they are song sisters. Now, Gemma is from Derry and Morgan is from Belfast, but they bonded as a group in Trinity College in Dublin a few years back, and they are parked in Dublin still. So welcome, Gemma and Morgan. And finally, we meet a County Antrim man who has a simply gorgeous name, Mr. David Honeyford. David is that iconic figure, the son of a preacher man, a Presbyterian minister nurtured in the proud Ulster tradition, but he's also well, come to love his local GAA team as much as his Ulster rugby, and these days he's also loving his Cupola Fuckle. And of course, he's uh, wondering really why we can't literally have both traditions and, in the real sense of those words, love both. So, thank you for being with us, David. <laughs> but first, before we get to talk to our wonderful guests, I get to talk to you. And I've been thinking about borders today, obviously. And you do hear a lot about borders these days, mostly from people who profess to love them, people who want to protect them or strengthen them or defend them or move them or build them and make somebody else pay for them. And like an understanding wife, they love them, whether they're hard or soft, just as long as they're not leaking. <laughs> I, on the other hand, have never liked borders. The only border I ever loved was a collie <laughs> named Jet. <laughs> When I was 21, I set out on my life's great adventure. I was going to go to Japan, and I was going to go overland by train. In 1990, when I set off, the Berlin Wall had just come tumbling down. You know, pictures of ecstatic Germans dancing atop the ruins of this unloved border were beamed around the world to seemingly universal joy. But between Berlin and Tokyo were plenty of other borders trying to be the fly in my youthful ointment. For starters, there was the ominous borders of the still extant Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. 
a border that would also soon crumble and be replaced by even more borders, bordering new wildly named places that we had never heard of, Armenia, Serbia, Moldova, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, who had apparently been waiting all these years for their chance to enter the Eurovision. In 1990, they were still waiting, and I just needed to get through the borders of Russia and Mongolia and China without a visa. (laughs) Easy, right? (laughs) Well, as it turned out, it actually was pretty easy. With the kind of dumb luck that a 21-year-old Irish kid who cuts his own hair, (laughs) I lubricated my passage by handing out Marlboro cigarettes and nylon tights, the currency of the day in a part of the world where paper money was more worthless by the hour. And I handed them out to anyone who stopped me because they had much bigger things to worry about than this weird foreign kid with a bad haircut. (laughs) I didn't love these borders. I spent long hours on a train, stopped in the middle of Siberia, while soldiers my own age passed my passport between them with blank looks, while I smiled gormlessly, until they shrugged and took a few more Marlboro cigarettes and moved on to my neighbor, the Chinese doctor, Dr. Chen, who was my new best friend and traveling companion. Further on, Surprisingly big and lumbering Mongolian border guards with huge smiles and eyes squinting from the desert wind posed for my camera and then wanted to see the pictures, apparently thinking that all cameras were Polaroids. (laughs) By the time that I had ridiculously mined and drawn and explained and pointed that the photograph was inside on a roll of film, (laughs) they were amused enough to move on to Dr. Chen after taking a few more Marlboro, of course and a pair of nylons. Presumably for a wife or girlfriend, but who am I to judge? (laughs) What was the point of these invisible lines out here in the desert? I mean, what was the difference between this bit of scrubby burnt earth here and that bit of scrubby burnt earth over there a few meters away? And of course, there was no difference between those two scrubby bits of dirt, except that one was arbitrarily considered to be part of the Soviet Union, and the other was arbitrarily assigned to be part of the People's Republic of China. The last time I saw Dr. Chen was in Beijing, in the canteen of a ministry building where he worked. Dr. Chen wasn't a real doctor. He managed a canteen in a ministry building in Beijing. I had always just called him the doctor because he wore spectacles and whenever I had a cough or a sniff, he would root through his belongings till he found just the potion or tincture or foul-smelling tea that would fix me and leave me strong as an ox. I think he quite liked that I called him the doctor though I can't be quite sure because, well, he didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Chinese. (laughs) But that, like the invisible borders in the desert, never seemed to come between us. Foreigners were rare in China then, and even in Beijing, the sight of a tall, pale Irish boy was enough to slow traffic or gather a small crowd around a noodle stall. So Dr. Chen was worried that bringing me into his canteen might cause a commotion or prompt questions from higher-ups. But... He was adamant that I must taste his speciality chicken before I left. He was very proud of his speciality chicken. (laughs) So Dr. Chen built a little border around me. He snuck me quietly into the canteen just before lunch, when it was almost empty, and sat me at one of the large round tables, which he had screened off from the rest of the dining room with fold-out room dividers. Then a cook squeezed through the gap in the screens and gigglingly placed the speciality chicken dish down while Dr. Chen beamed expectantly at me. To be honest, 
I didn't think the chicken lived up to the hype. <laughs> but I assured Dr. Chen that it was the most delicious chicken I'd ever tasted. <laughs> but by now, I could hear that the canteen was filling up with hungry workers on the other side of this makeshift border wall, and it only took minutes before the first security breach occurred. An inquisitive head appeared over the screen and grinned down at me. Mr. Chen shooed away the head, but seconds later, it returned, this time joined by a couple of other grinning heads. And soon there were cheerful heads all around the makeshift walls, and within minutes, the border was fully breached, and I finished my chicken, surrounded by an amused audience of 20 or more ministry workers who'd have quite the story to tell later when they got home about the funny-looking foreigner who was eating chicken in the canteen. <laughs> Dr. Chen was a bit annoyed, but I didn't mind at all. In fact, I quite admired that their curiosity about what was behind this hastily you know, erected border had easily overpowered their fear of getting into trouble. We love to mark our territory and draw lines around things. It's part of the human condition, it would appear. We like things to be black and white, and we recoil from the grey. We want to know who you are and what you are and sort you into the appropriate boxes. Are you man or woman? Pick one and stay in your box. Are you Catholic or Protestant, British or Irish? Pick one and stay on your side. Liberal or conservative, extrovert or introvert, get in your box, stay on your side. You're making me uncomfortable by being in a no-man's land. No, I don't like borders and I don't like boxes either. Like most of us, I'm an awkward shape and I don't fit comfortably in a box. But now, Rita, so um, I grew up thinking of Belfast and Northern Ireland as being this weird sort of place until I started to visit it regularly when I used to work there. But even when I was going up there every week, I guess about 10, 15 years ago or something, it felt that the borders were still there, the lines between people were still there. But you grew up before the peace agreement in Belfast were the lines etched into your very soul, in a way? Well, it's interesting. I think I can only speak from my own experience, but I grew up in South Belfast. We lived in a kind of a Protestant, working-class, aspiring area. My mother was from County Offaly in the South, so was definitely in territory that was not home for her. Mm. My father was from the Falls Road, so they were regarded as kind of strange, you know, to be in that area. Yeah. My grandfather was killed at the Somme. They lived in Conway Street. And four years after he had been killed for king and country, supposedly, they were burnt out of their house for living too far down the Shankill end. So these tensions and these divisions have been in Belfast mm. for a long, long time. And rather than say Catholic and Protestant, I would say it's been basically the the evolution of colonialism that mm. has caused our problems and that has created ignorance around each other. Yeah. I mean, the dissociation of unionists from their Irish cultural heritage, like the sash was first sung in Irish. The first person I heard speaking Irish was a Presbyterian carpenter who lived up our street. I grew up mm. with a lot of those contradictions. That's why I'm more interested in digging beneath the surface of some of these mythologies and meeting people and talking to individuals yeah. rather than running with the herd. Yeah, because uh, no matter how hard you try, you can never find somebody who's entirely one thing or another. No, it's like bigotry is born out of ignorance. It's born out of painting another person a particular distasteful colour. Yep. And actually what's happening is we fear that in ourselves. The most homophobic men I've ever met 
I would deeply suspect of being romantically inclined <laughs> in a way that they perhaps can't accept. Yeah. So it's like we mirror each other as human beings. Mm. And sometimes what we see in those mirrors, we don't like. And the society that I grew up in in Belfast was not a particularly creative society. It's still not a particularly woman-friendly society. And gradually, as the south of Ireland becomes much more kind of energetic and creative and Mm. forward-thinking, I think the north will get swept along with Mm. it. I mean, I live in the north, but I work in the south. I kind of cross the border two or three times a day. The it's a very, very soft border. It's a very soft border. It's a lovely border. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful parts of Ireland, yeah. simply because it is the border. We haven't had a kind of an outrageous epidemic of bungalows and terrible planning permission. Yeah. And I believe that instead of all this kind of terminal talking and kind of dissection and uh, thing, I think we just need to get up and get on with it. Yeah. We are very fortunate we live in Ireland. And now, uh, David, you, as I mentioned, you're the son of a preacher man and Presbyterian, and that almost in a way, at a casual glance, really box you. Did you feel that when you were young? Yeah, I suppose I'm... So I, I grew up through the Troubles in a Presbyterian manse. So my dad was the, the local minister. I grew up in manse. I met Lee and my wife. We got married. But then our kids have been involved with the GA, so it's sort of very contradicting of what it is. But the school system in the north is so segregated. So I went to a Protestant state school for primary mm. school, but I went to Lagan College, which was the first integrated school in 1985. So I grew up through the Troubles with... 50% of my friends were Catholic, 50% of the, the school mm. was Protestant. So sort of still today, they talk about shared education, but we've effectively got apartheid education where, yeah. where two communities are completely isolated and then we expect them as adults to behave like any other country yeah. in the world. But at the time, the sort of evangelical movement of the Presbyterian Church was was very radical at that time. Mm. Not only were you been told to love your enemy, and, but you were told to, to look after and treat mm. and get involved. So that was the message coming out of the kind of church that I grew up in at the time. Yet you had this kind of no surrender, and yep. no, which I just didn't relate to. I couldn't relate. So it was a very conscious decision on your parents' part to send you to a mixed yeah. secondary school? Yeah, because my granny's from the Shankill Road. Your granny had a, a chip shop Yeah, my granny and owned a chip shop and a, and a fruit shop on the, on the Shankill. Chip shop and fruit. <laughs> and a fruit and veg next door. So, but my, my dad's family would have been Quakers. So my grandfather on that side would have been Quakers, and it was very much... That sort of spirit of integration and, yeah. and not having those borders and not having those boundaries. Mm. And Stefan, you were growing up where in Northern Ireland? Down Patrick, County yeah. Down, the patron saint's uh, resting place. And was your upbringing very segregated? I was one of the lucky few. I had the, the jackpot when I, the family I was born into. There wasn't a sectarian bone in their body. It was very much a case of we're all the same and what you were was really an accident of birth. So um, I grew up the son of a photographer. Yes, a very sort of well-known sort of troubled photographer. Yeah, and portrait photographer as well. And my mother and my father mm-hmm. were musicians in a folk band called Hallier Wished. Mm-hmm. Well, both, you know, my father's from Brookborough, County Fermanagh, and his mother and father's landlord was actually Lord Brookborough. Mm-hmm. Both my mother and my father were Irish nationalists mm-hmm. with a small N. You know, they were civil rights campaigners. So they, they settled in Downpatrick. They were blow-ins, essentially. Mm. And that's where I spent my, my childhood. But um, some of my first girlfriends were Protestants. So I was in De La Salle anyway, Catholic school. And mm. after school, I would go down and be, I would be seen in my uniform with girls from the state school, as we called it, the Down High. And everybody knew they were the Protestant girls. 
And I think I was the only one in my year to be seen mixing. But, but, but mixing seems to be what your family, because your father brought out an album of Protestant folk songs. And how did that go down with the neighbours? Well, talk about capturing the true essence of punk. <laughs> I mean, that's still ahead of its time. My mum and dad thought they don't really have many of their own songs in the, in the sort of similar vein as, as we had. Down Patrick is like a pretty nationalist town. And there they were in the 70s. Things were kicking off. And uh, my father and mother said, let's make an orange album. <laughs> so they did. And I remember one day my mother walking me to school and we were leaving the shop. My father had a photography shop on Irish Street. And I remember uh, looking at the window. Somebody had painted UDA, bleep, bleep. I won't uh, say the words, but you can imagine. And asking my mother what UDA meant. And so that was my first lesson in uh, the acronym soup that mm. we grew up in, you know. So it seemed to be the height of friction that came off making this record in, the, in our hometown. And I, I still can't get over it. Nobody gave me a minute's hassle over it. Now, on, on this side, um, but we have the younger generation, the people who are referred to as the Good Friday generation, and Morgan <laughs> McIntyre. Tell me your background. Well, um, I grew up in Belfast, yeah. on the Ormond Road. My dad came from a Catholic family in Kildare. My mum was from a Protestant family, but my family wasn't very religious at all, and mixed marriage and all that kind of thing, and they were very keen to get away from that. Both of them mm. are journalists, though, so... They're incredibly interested in politics and we're very sure to make sure that me and my sister were knew what was going on and yeah. were very aware. But I guess myself and Gemma are part of the post-Troubles generation, yeah. but it's still kind of etched into our DNA. And it's something mm. that I guess has affected my identity. And I guess one of the reasons I moved to Dublin for college was to try and get back at some of that Irishness that I felt I was lacking from living in in Belfast and going to a Protestant school. Mm. And I kind of felt like everyone was having this big Cayley and trad session in Dublin and that I was missing out in it. And <laughs> Not in Trinity, they weren't. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, once I got there, that I would find this sense of Irishness that I felt that I didn't have. And then I got here and then I was known as the Nordy and you're always going to be the Nordy and yeah, you, yeah. they don't care about you at all and you've been dreaming of them all, your whole life. <laughs> so that that was kind of another shock, a culture shock coming down because I, I really did not expect Dublin to be the way it was. And I guess in the most more recent years, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm an Nordy and also Irish and I can be both yeah. things and and that's fine. Yeah. And you, you can't escape it. No. You, you know, your accent marks you out and everybody yes. wants to ask you about it. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And impersonate you all the time. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> Especially yeah, yeah, the yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But shouting while they're impersonating you. <laughs> now, Gemma, you are from Derry. I and am. you're from a Catholic background. Yeah, I am. Um, Morgan and I strangely have quite a like, similar... Both moved to Dublin when we were 18. I grew up in, in Derry, in the city, through the 90s. And where we're living, it's pretty much right on the border. So for us, we spent all of our summers in Donegal, which is just on the road, you know, like 20 minute drive maybe. Mm. And it just always blew my mind just how, how different it was for yeah. my parents in the sense that we would just jump in the car and head down and you're at the beach or you're in the caravan yeah. in 20 minutes. But for them, it was, you know, queues at the border and the hassle and the just how, how different that was. Mm. I was born in 92, so we're really coming out of the troubles in that sense. But I see myself as quite similar to my parents, but I just can't get over some of the some of the stories and some of the experiences that they had. Yeah. So it, it does show that, that a lot has changed and um struck 
also by coming to Dublin, David, you're talking about the, the segregation in the schools. That's just something that I just thought was. And um, that is never really something I thought a whole lot about mm. until I moved away. Mm. Two weeks ago, I was in a taxi in London and the driver starts asking me things and where I'm from. And he thought there was three Irelands. Yeah. <laughs> he thought there was Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland and Ireland. And then during the conversation, and you were, I'm trying to explain <laughs> to him. And to him, it's nonsense. Because what's the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant as far as, you know, he was you know, from the Middle East somewhere. And it's, it's almost impossible to explain to somebody. Well, um, it's beyond explanation. Actually, what's very interesting from an artistic point of view, it means that the arts become massively relevant. And when you look at this tiny little Ireland and the function it has worldwide, it's really, really interesting when you start thinking through the arts in terms of our identity and what your chosen identity... We all create our own identities anyway. I mean, who are you telling? (laughs) 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 Now, uh, Saint Sister, you're going to do a song for us. It's called Causing Trouble. Yeah. It's uh, pretty relevant for uh, this podcast. It's all about transitioning from Belfast to Dublin and uh, what that kind of means for yourself and what you're searching for. Mm. And there's a line, we danced from Belfast to the Basin and the Basin is the Blessington Basin, which I live beside now. So, yes, Blessington, beautiful part of the city that lots of people don't even know exists. And yeah, it's like so a little secret yeah. garden. Yeah, it uh, comes out of nowhere. It's gorgeous. Well, let's be having you. Which my body's for a while 
Thank you. It's such a gorgeous sound you two make together. Oh, thank you. And Gemma, you're, you're playing the harp there. How many times have you taught yourself, God, I wish I'd just taken up the harmonica? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, it factors for sure. Because yeah. it's, it's a bit of a beast mm. to get around the place. <laughs> but yeah, I've been playing it since I was um, like five or six maybe since you were five or six I mean yeah. what you had a harp lying around the no. house or something how um, does that even happen I started getting piano lessons when I was five or so and my mom taught in a school in Derry with um, and the music teacher in that school ran a harp school so she'd just seen photos of like 20 little kids with tiny little harps and she thought that looks great and um, by the way Gemma do you like Derry girls I do TV like show? Derry girls yeah it was fab there was a bit of apprehension before it came out because you know people, yeah. identity and all that. <laughs> Such humour in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you just, you, you don't know, is it, are they going to miss the mark? Is it going to work? But yeah. it came out uh, maybe January, so I was home for Christmas and we all kind of sat down to watch it and that doesn't happen very often because we're not all at home at the same time. And within the first like five minutes, everyone's like having a good laugh. So that's yeah. a good sign. But yeah. And, and of course the idea good. that you're making, they're making you know, fun about jokes about the troubles and everything. People still don't do that much. And you know, it's yeah. a... And it, it's, it also is just kind of, Shedding a bit of light on how it actually was, you know, just the kind of day to day, the idea of like, oh, I can't go over the bridge to get my tan. Like, that's real. And people, that's kind of the way. <laughs> that's how, but that's more, I, that's more real. That is more the, real. Just, kind of the, the dialogue that you it. hear on political documentaries. That's like, it's been a massive that's the hit. Real horror that's the real horror. Like, yeah. And they've also commissioned a new series as well. They have. And it is, it's those wee stories that kind of come through like that uh, when my dad in in 73 mm. his family ran a pub and the pub was was blown up he was only 12 years old but the story that I always remember from that and the one he always tells is just going to the school the next day and just being absolutely told off for not having his uniform and they he was like oh my house was blown up and they just didn't really care and that's that's the story he tells it's mm. just the smaller kind of everyday madness that kind of went went along with it. Well, you know, humour never dies, does it? And Rita, you're a firm believer in humour. Yeah, well, I love the surreal detail in human stories. Mm. But I also believe that it's a big part of the Irish nature, humour. And it's an incredible way to kind of alleviate difficult situations. It also takes the fear out of things. I think if you can laugh at something... You know, you're not afraid of it anymore. Yeah, we, we, tend, we laugh at things that frighten us, that disturb us, that we don't understand. It is a very powerful thing in the arts if you can kind of cast a spell like you've just done with that harp mm. or if you can actually create a kind of an absurdity or an irony. Yeah. David Honeyford, any relation to Gloria? Well, very, very far far away. But oh, so there is a connection. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. That, that makes me feel better about the world, that people are related to Gloria Honeyford. Yeah. Tell me about the GAA thing. Yeah, I suppose I'm, everyone's Irish, okay? I, I'm yeah. coming from the point here where Protestant, Catholic, whatever in the North, we're all Irish. Culture's formed from sport and arts, music, and that's all enhanced and encouraged and supported. And, and the GAA, Protestants don't have the GAA. So as I sort of transition from one community mm. and live in, in another community and have links in, in both. My friends don't have that. There isn't that culture within the majority of Protestants living in Northern Ireland. Yep. So whenever I come across into, into the GA, eight years ago it came out of, mm. I was coaching in the rugby club and let's bring them to Glenavy, um, which is the nearest GA club. And my son was at the time eight, seven, eight years old. It's a ball, it's grass. Religion doesn't come into it. It's, it's, it's just fun and sport. Yep. And so they ended up 
from that first day, there was five, six boys, kids at the time, started to play regularly and joined the club. So I wasn't joining as a single person going on my, going my own. I was part of a, sort of a group of people coming and we were welcomed beyond your wildest dreams. Mm. I lived in the village for what, 20 years of my life. I didn't even know where the GA club was because as a person growing up, that's an area of the of the village that I didn't need to be. So we now in, in Glenavy, 25, 30% of, of now are under 16 levels are Protestants. Mm. And through, and you've got natural kind of integration of people through using sport, but Protestants don't have that warmth of culture that is there. You, you know, they're obviously there's the, the orange culture, but a lot of times it's kind of embarrassing to the normal public whenever you've got, now it's a very small percentage of orange parades end up in violence and end up, you know, but whenever you see kids going to school and are doing and they can't get to school because a, a, a parade is boycotted or for a segment of people looking on, it, it's embarrassing. So, the, so but, but it was like the cultural exchange went on here because yeah. you gave them Mars bars and apple sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. Mars bars and apple sandwiches. <laughs> I've never heard of. I grew up on Mars bars and apple sandwiches. <laughs> and that's a Protestant thing. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. So, apple so, sandwiches. Yeah, yeah, they're we, together in one sandwich in one, between yeah. pieces of bread. Yeah. And so we had a GAA game, this chase of sandwiches for the opposite, opposite team, and it, it was on a kind of rota. It's my turn. So I said, Lane, you need to make me a set of sandwiches. I said, well, the rota says your name, so you need to make sandwiches. How do you make a Mars bar and apple sandwich? So you cut the apple very fine. And green you cut, apple? Green apple. Uh-huh. And you get two bits of bread and you put it in between. Like you and put the Mars and, bar? Like you cut, so you cut the, the Mars, slice the Mars bar. Fun, yeah. So you slice wow. the Mars bar. That's what I grew up on. So whenever we <laughs> Look, came to... It the, sounds disgusting, yeah. but you know I'm going to try it now because yeah. there must be something yeah. about it. Yeah. I knew they were weird. Literally what happened, so these sandwiches came out and a guy I, I've known for years came out of the clubhouse going, who the, made put, put an apple and Mars bar between two bits of bread. And I went, I did that. And I went, what, what, why? And I went, that's what I grew up on. And then there's a couple of other sort of parents of, of kids that are playing from oh, the Church of Ireland. That's what we have too. And then it turned out, it's definitely a Protestant definitely. thing. This is where fusion. <laughs> this is where fusion cookery came from. Yeah, yeah, see? confusion. Yeah. And I'm slightly terrified. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just to finish, I think the GAA, like you felt welcomed there and everything. But I suspect that's also because the GAA had changed. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I felt totally excluded from that aspect of Irish culture. I felt totally outside of the GAA thing because I didn't feel like I yeah. ticked all the little boxes that you needed to tick to be a GAA guy, you know? But I wouldn't feel that now. I mean, I'm still not interested in football, you know, I'm a drag queen, but, <laughs> but, but I don't feel excluded from it. Yeah, I think, I think when the rugby happened in Croke Park, it was a major change in the psyche mm-hmm. of the GAA. I can't answer really from the GAA changing and stuff. I can yeah. only be as sort of the guest coming in mm-hmm. and... Uh, at the start, you're coming in like you're the, sort of, you think everybody's kind of looking at you, but nobody is. And then whenever you, you get up, everyone's wanting the best from you and you, you're loved and appreciated and, and welcomed with open arms. And some of our closest friends we've grown to, to know through, through that relationship. So, But the GAA thing, you sort of feel, mm-hmm. it sounds like you sort of fell into it in a way. And, but deciding to learn Irish, now that was a very, that's a very conscious decision. What, what prompted that? Because as an Ulster Protestant growing up, it's like this kind of void of Irishness. 
my granny, right, when she went to Tesco's or whatever, would check the labels of whatever she was buying to make sure they weren't made in the free state. Because it was this kind of, if we keep Ireland down there, we'll not mm. be part of them up here and we've got our own land and that. Yeah. So whenever you start to then integrate into into community and you start to, let's hold on, we're Irish here. And whether we're Protestant Irish or Catholic Irish or whatever, we're all, we're all, we're all Irish. You start to look for things that you've missed in your childhood and, and growing up. So feel drastically badly at doing, but I, I went in Irish language and then out of the Irish language class actually ended up learning the Irish dance on a, in front of a village, which was the most embarrassing uh, episode. But I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, who's an East Belfast loyalist and he went to England and he drinks Guinness in England because he feels Irish. <laughs> that is in, but yet it's something that is, is suppressed or not encouraged to be expressed out. A big thing in Belfast, I noticed our neighbours when we lived in Belfast, the middle-class Protestants, their children would go to university on the mainland. I'm (laughs) using inverted commas here, okay? And they would engage with their sense of Irishness. They would Mm. support the Irish rugby team. They would allow themselves to be called Irish, Mm -hmm. even though in Belfast that probably would have issued a dig in the jaw for somebody. And they don't come back because it's sexier to be Irish. It's Mm. kind of, it's more comfortable and they feel comfortable in that. So that that kind of repressed unionism that says, think only British. I mean, they don't teach Irish history in state schools. Mm. So to get an underpaid, ready workforce, colonialism worked beautifully in Belfast. We had the largest, the most successful shipyard in the world that built the most amazing liners Yet they were the poorest paid and the worst conditions in any shipyard in the world at the time. And any time there was any activity toward unionising or towards getting people together to complain, basically people were told, shut up or the Fenians will get your jobs. Mm. But it worked very well for that upper crust of unionists who took the money out of Belfast in truckloads. We have no municipal art gallery because anything visual was considered, you know, somewhat suspect. You know, there was a very, very repressed, but very right-wing governance. Yeah, nothing's of, really of changed. No, nothing has really changed in fun, terms of, yeah. you know, there is a degree of integration in middle-class schools, mm. and it's really because Catholic middle-class are quite content to have their children sitting beside rich Protestants. Yep. But it doesn't... It, the, what they call now shared education, it, it's like exactly the opposite of what it is. So what's happening in the North now is a four-year-old child living next door to a four-year-old child is separated and they go to two separate schools. And whatever way you put it, it's a Protestant school and it's a Catholic school, you can call it whatever you like. Mm. So they've come up with this shared school and the only thing it shared is the roof. So you walk in the front door and you go left with a different uniform if you're one and you turn right if you're a Protestant. And you go. Can you imagine in America, I'll not say Trump, but say Obama, came up with an idea with... This is the blacks, they turn left, and this is the whites and Americans, they turn mm. right. It's, 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 it's apartheid. It's complete apartheid. Well, called, and it's, uh, the Catholic Church holding the education system and the Protestant churches of the, the state holding the art without letting go of that. We can talk about New Irelands and everything and wanting the best of Ireland, but until you unite the community in the north, mm. you're not uniting the community regardless of what. But the, our biggest you know. problem is that we have no leadership. There's no leadership with courage. There's massive problems in Belfast and in the north where the peace process did not shine its light. And we have really been totally ineffective with that. Um, Stefan, let's uh, have a song. Okay. Yes. 
Do you want to tell us what you're <coughs> singing? I do. Yes. Um, it's a song from an album I released in America called Secrets and Lies. Yeah, that, that's it. Let's hear it. Okay. Kissing my pain away Different day You're closing a door On the sun you bore Well I don't know you anymore And what am I to do With someone like you Come this way, go away I don't know what to say All I know is the lights in this town, they are feeding down, feeding down. And I've seen secrets in your eyes, mother's love, loyalty, loyalty lines, secrets and lies. of my invention to withhold your love with such bold intention what am I to do with someone like you and I've seen secrets in your eyes mother's love loyalty lies secrets lies So pour me a drink of whatever you think might Help me feel half as good as you're looking tonight Thank you, Stefan. Now, when I used to work, I used to work in um, the, the Kremlin, the gay bar in Belfast. But one of the things that I liked about a gay bar, <laughs> they tend to be more diverse in the sense that there's less of us, so we don't have the many choices, so we're all thrown together. So if you go to a regular kind of straight bar, generally the patrons are all roughly the same socioeconomic bracket. They're similar, similar age or whatever. But if you go into a gay bar, there'll be an 80-year-old barrister talking to a 21-year-old carpenter and, you know, and probably going home and kissing. And in, in Belfast, I used to find that the, in the gay bar, for the same reasons, they were less concerned about what your family name was and what part of the city you were from. And of course, Morgan, I'm talking to you, but the, 
the new Belfast, the new Northern Ireland, are you less concerned or do you care or even consider or is it somewhere very deep down in there that you're aware of what somebody's surname is or what part of the city they're from? I'm still aware. I'm st- you're clocking things, but you're not, yeah. you don't care. It's, it's kind of it's something that um, even down to like uh, schoolyard games, you know, if you pronounce your H's, like H or H, you're Catholic or Protestant. So those little things, they don't go away because you've been taught them yeah. all your life. But it's definitely something that I feel like my friends um, and probably we live pretty sheltered existences, but it's not a concern. But definitely friends of mine that came to visit me in Belfast when I was in college, some of them didn't tell their parents that they were going down because they had heard that it was so terrible in in the north and that they would still be persecuted for having a southern accent or mm. whatever it was. So I definitely think the the Belfast that I know, that kind of thing isn't an issue anymore. And were you, when you came down here to, to Trinity and you're mi- mixing with people of your own age from Dublin or whatever, did you find that they were ignorant of the whole thing? Yeah, there were a couple of, as you said, the people who had said, oh, I've, n- I've never been up north and that's fine. I'm sure there's people from Derry who've never been to Cork just because it's yeah. really far away. So that's one thing. But there was the other slight element of like, people would almost be embarrassed to say, oh, I'm sorry, I've actually never... I've never gone. And then they come away and they go, oh, it's actually really nice. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, go, go there more. It is, it is a know? funny thing because, you know, I yeah. very clearly remember the first time I went to Belfast. Yeah. The, the thing that really struck me, and this is going to sound just so ridiculous, but was the flooring of the train station. <laughs> it had Protestant flooring, the kind of rubber <laughs> prelly flooring that I only knew from London stations. And it threw me for a second because I was expecting it to look like and feel like Ireland with funny accents. And it wasn't. And that pulled me up a little. It did feel like a different country. But I think a lot of times we cross borders and the boundaries really are in our heads. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's the stuff that we kind of log yeah, yeah. as being, that's a northern thing. So I mean, I've often thought that the difference has been that being from the north, you say it right out front. Yeah. And being in the south, it's kind of like, uh, let's be, you know, and it's they're much more evasive and kind of... Mellow, so you there feel is that too because you will feel like yeah, yeah, very it's kind blunt. of like get to yeah. it straight yeah. up. You know, it's like don't muck around, and I mean maybe <laughs> that's to do with thirty, forty years conditioning of yeah. like struggling. Somebody said to me recently that uh, you Northerners really take yourselves seriously, and I says, well, if if I didn't take myself seriously, who would? <laughs> yeah, I lived in Dublin for thirteen years. When I opened my mouth. I got a vibe that, oh, here comes trouble. Yes, well, that was very definite in the arts. I mean, mention that you were from Belfast, you could clear a room in Dublin 4 in, right. in, in two minutes. Well, the, the thing that always strikes me, and I'm going to direct it to our, our Protestant friends on the panel today, is you have the nationalist community and they had this connection to the South. And the South, for all of our, you know, not caring too much or being ignorant of the situation, there's a little part of us that's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, one day maybe we'll all be one hallelujah sort of vibe. But if you're a Northern Irish Protestant and you go to London and you hand them over your Northern Irish tenor, the taxi driver will look at you as if you're handing him rubles. And I think if I was a Northern Irish Unionist, that would stick in my craw. Does it? Actually, do you want to know Stephen Nolan in in, in the North, one of the broadcasters was on about the very same thing a few weeks ago where he tried to use he works in Manchester works in, in Belfast and he, he tried to use a, an Ulster bank note I think it was mm. and they wouldn't accept it. Yeah, it so, happens uh, all the time because yeah, yeah. when I was working in Belfast they would often you yeah. know 
they'd be giving you an envelope with cash in it sometimes, yeah. and they, I'd be like, no, I don't want those things because I knew <laughs> I wouldn't be able to use them. You I know, in London, whatever. There's also Protestants who who actually do believe that they are like another county of, of England, but yeah, the majority yeah. don't think. The majority realize that we are different. But in so, in some ways, the you know, Northern Irish units have sort of staked their identity on this connection with Britain, and then when you go to the mainland. The regular British people don't even know you, know you exist. No, but the, when, they go, when they go to England, they become Irish. So whenever they go over, they get this Irish identity. That the, it's, it's I bizarre. Think, I think a lot of people get yeah. disappointed from the unionist community yeah. when they go over and say they're British. They've, they've kind of got this Britishness when it suits as well. So, they, they, you know, when it comes to the equal marriage, when it comes to things, all of a sudden we're not British no more. Mm. Don't bake yeah. cakes for gay people. Yeah. <laughs> no. We don't eat cakes anymore. No carbs. We don't eat carbs. No carbs. But I think Ireland also has a healthier nationality or a healthier approach, I think. You've got this contrast of the new Ireland or the Ireland that's so diverse and welcoming and and what you want to see is a welcoming, diverse nation that is outward looking and and focused on being a leader in the world stage. Mm. And then you've got this within section of Ulster Unionism, it's it's just protective. So it's, it's so closed and backward because... It's focused on the past. It's the only thing there is. There is no future beyond what is now. So it's constantly looking inward and looking. And it's exactly the polar opposite of, of what an Ireland that I would love to see and love to live in is. But there is such a rich culture yeah, in, well, in, within Orangeism. I mean, I collaborated. We borrowed poles recently from the Orange Lodge for this big um, 100th centenary thing with um, women getting the vote. And I was in through Carlisle Circus Memorial Hall there yeah. and all of the kind of paraphernalia of orangeism, the sashes, the the regalia, it's fascinating. But what could be the, if, the fourth? If they would only yeah. be courageous enough to open it out a little bit. I, I mean, I couldn't be a member. I'd love to, in some ways, <laughs> get with all that street parade thing. The gay community would have a ball. <laughs> With all that stuff. We do wear a sash well. <laughs> <laughs> the, the exhibition in, in the Highlands in Drogheda is obviously quite yes, close. Yes, I wanted to ask you about It's that. quite close to the Boyne, so yeah. I am exploring my orange heritage, being an Ulster woman. So there's quite a lot of humour. Well, for the benefit of people, tell us about the, the thing you're doing in Drogheda. Well, the exhibition in Drogheda, I mean, it, it's a former old church. It's one of the oldest churches in Drogheda. So there's this incredible marble altar. So I'm festooning the altar with a kind of an Irish orange green Tex-Mex sort of mixture. We'll have everything from Mm. space hoppers that were in my childhood in the 70s through to, of course, the black and tan shoe Mm. polish, Somme sticking plasters from France in in the First World War. And the whole thing is very democratic in that you can take away an artwork for as little as five euros. One of your original pieces. Limited editions. Limited editions. Yeah, it'll be on right through to the end of August. Um, Stefan, Dan Patrick to uh, Finland. That's right. Is not a common trajectory. That's not well known, no. I've had a family, an instant family in the last three years. So I've a wee girl and a wee boy who are actually Lutheran, a northern nationalist going to Finland. And I don't think it's an accident that, that they're a neutral country. You went there because you fell in love with the Finnish girl or you met a Finnish girl when you were in Finland? Uh, the first one in Seattle. I was studying in Seattle for a year. I went to Finland to do my master's in international politics and fell in love with the country. And then, yeah, I've had a history with Finland ever since. And I've lived there and I've been away, but I've never 
lived back in Northern Ireland. But you moved to Finland, yeah. and yet Northern Ireland is deeply embedded in your work. Your work is looking back at Northern Ireland and way about Northern Ireland. Good point, and that's pretty much where I am at the moment. Mm-hmm. I left Northern Ireland and I, I didn't look back until recently. After years of, you know, whatever you say, say nothing. The time really had come, at least for me and, and my, in my life, to, to, to say something. Um, Saint Sister, I think um, let's have a song, shall we? Perfect. So this one's called The Matter and it's... The Matter, the, the, matter, ho- after the, hospital. the hospital in Dublin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's going to be on our first album, which is out in October, which is called Shape of Silence. <clears throat> and we'll play for you now. Yes, please. Yeah. Shadow of the staircase. Wash my hands of you in the kitchen sink. And in that house, I knew we'd never close this distance. You said, Baby, we are closer than you think. So I made love to the idea of your involvement. And the conversation we You never judge the way I solve my problems Then you left me in the garden talking art I just wish we left in time That's all I just wish we left in time That's all
so gorgeous. And then, um, I just want to sort of ask you all, really, are you optimistic about the future for Northern Ireland, especially, uh, you know, with Brexit and all the stuff that's going on at the moment? I'm always optimistic. Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But um, I think the Brexit thing is very interesting. Mm -hmm. I think Ireland has become a real pain in the arse for the, the Tory government mm -hmm. at the moment. And I think we may well wake up and find that our soft border has disappeared completely into the Irish Sea. I'm not a rabid Republican. I am a border dweller. And I find it's an incredible place of confusion. But out of that comes incredible creativity. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm very optimistic that with all we've been through in the North, there will be a resurgence that will totally inspire a change in the South as well. That's a lovely way to think about it. No, well, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that history or, or evolution is linear. I think we, we take steps back and mm -hmm. uh, as, as depressing as that is, you know, David. Obama... In a way, you're the, the perfect example of a good future for Northern Ireland. Your, your daughter's here too. My daughter's here, yeah. She's probably terribly bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, I, I want to live in an Ireland that is open and progressive and, and looking forward and, and leading in the world. And, and sort of Brexit probably pushes that to the forefront um, mm -hmm. for a lot of Northern Protestants and, and nationalists. It's the kind of thing that unifies a lot of people in the north. Um, people have to try more, don't they? Yeah. I mean, the Irish imagination is huge. It can't mm. but be an optimistic future. Well, I mean, look at J-Man Morgan here. I mean, this is the mm. future of Northern Ireland that we've always wanted, isn't it? But you're also emblematic of a, of a future we all want. You know, I mean, but seriously, all joking aside, you're young, you grew up in a Northern Ireland that was entirely different to the ones I grew up seeing on the TV, and you're, uh, you're hands across the religious divide. You know, you're, 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 you literally are the poster kids for what Northern Ireland could be. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have a lot of faith in the people of Northern Ireland and uh, the great imagination that we have. Yeah. Um, but I am worried that we'll be left behind by the lack of leadership of our politicians. And we're getting left behind in terms of gay rights and uh, women's reproductive rights and it's um, hopefully the energy that has mm. been kind of gathering in the south will yeah. try and will filter down. We definitely felt it in the last few months with all the incredible positivity and optimism that we had with the, with the referendum and it was overwhelmingly great but immediately we both just went okay but yeah our hearts sank a little bit. Look up home. No. Anyway, um, that is sort of the end of, uh, of this episode of Pantasocracy. So I would just like to thank all of my guests. Saint Sister, Jennifer Morgan, thank, thank you so you. much. You, the, the sound is really gorgeous. Rita Duffy, thank you for giving us the benefit of your wisdom. David Honeyford, I, I think you need to reach out to Gloria and, you know, make that connection stronger. And Stefan, thank you so much. Thanks Good luck in, in Finland. And Cheers. Uh, thank you. Yes, you should do the Eurovision. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, like, I think that's a winning combination. All right. You know, Irish and, and think Finnish. Think about that, yeah. Anyway, um, you can catch up on all past episodes of Pantasocracy on pantasocracy.ie and they are also uh, podcasted on all the usual platforms from Spotify to iTunes, so you have no excuse whatsoever. And if you go to pantasocracy.ie, you can also see the performances, all previous performances and videos and so on and so forth. So uh, thank you for being here to my guests and thank you to our delightful studio audience and thank you at home for listening. Thank you.